This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on African News Tonight. I think his writings and otherwise indicate he was a man of great humility, of great patience, who listened very, very well, um, who, whose entire life was focused around bringing God to people and bringing people to God. That's Joseph Capizzi, a professor of theology at the Catholic University of America on the legacy of late Pope Benedict. Details coming up. Also, Egypt's economy is struggling. The U.S. House of Representatives is still trying to select a new leader. And there is optimism about peace in Tigray. All these and more on African News Tonight. We start with our top story. In Rome, today, crowds of mourners gathered at the St. Peter's Square for the funeral of Pope Emeritus Benedict, who died Saturday at the age of 95. More than 60,000 people attended the ceremony, among them official delegations from Italy and Benedict's native Germany. Other leaders, including the King and Queen of Belgium and about 13 heads of state or government, attended in a private capacity. A choir sings as a Roman Catholic cardinal blesses the coffin of Benedict during the funeral service led by his successor, Pope Francis. In 2013, Benedict became the first pope to retire from the office in 600 years. Pope Francis prays, Gracious Father, who commanded, we commend to your mercy, Pope Emeritus Benedict, whom you made successor of Peter and shepherd of the church. Catholics and other Christians around the world have reflected on Benedict's legacy over the past several days. In Accra, Bilkis Gui speaks about his support for traditional Catholic doctrine. He just didn't want to bend. He was so traditional, conservative, and he wanted to keep the Holy See holy and didn't want to mar it with anything that was uncatholic. Also in Accra, Esther Igyapong says she admired his leadership. He was a great leader. He had his weaknesses. He had um, a few inconsistencies in his papacy. But I think he served well. He, d- he displayed integrity. As people pondered Benedict's legacy, some mourners called for him to be elevated to sainthood. Benedict's death on Saturday brought to an end a decade of the former and present Pope living side by side in the Vatican, and it was the first time in more than 200 years that the pontiff had led the service for his predecessor. Professor Joseph Capizzi is a professor of theology at the Catholic University of America. VOA's Douglas Mpuga reached him by phone in Washington and began by asking him his impression of the funeral. Um, I thought the funeral was elegant and beautiful uh, and to some extent really spoke to uh, the kind of man Pope Benedict was. Uh, There was a kind of, you know, focus on the gospel in Pope Francis's uh, comments, you know, in his homily that I thought was just representative of the way Pope Benedict focused his life, his teachings, his writings on the gospel himself. Talking of Pope Benedict the man and his life as a pope, 
uh, there are already calls for some people from some quarters for his uh, being made a saint. First of all, what's the likelihood, and if so, what will the process be like? Well, there's, there's been a trend, uh, as you probably know, to move popes, uh, recognize their sainthood relatively quickly. Uh, and, you know, of course, that happened most you know, conspicuously with Pope John Paul II. So I, I can see there's some momentum to do this. I, I can't, of course, speculate about whether it will happen, but... But Pope Benedict clearly lived a saintly life. Uh, you know, his, again, I think there's a misapprehension of him sometimes in the press that he was a rigorous, you know, difficult, unyielding man. And in fact, I think his writings and otherwise indicate he was a man of great humility, of great patience, who listened very, very well, um, who, whose entire life was focused around bringing God to people and bringing people to God. So uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if um, it moves quickly again with uh, Pope Benedict. And unlike other popes before him, he seems to have had admir- admirers from many faiths, not only the Catholic faith. That's correct. And I think that that speaks to the way he was animated by the love of God. And, and also even the conviction that he applied to the pursuit of truth. Faithful people, people of very different faiths, recognize in other people of faith this burning commitment to pursue the truth. And sometimes this can lead to direct confrontation and questioning about different claims of faith, but it's but usually it's done with great respect among people like that. And I think that people of other faiths, Jews, Muslims, even atheists, right, who uh, Pope Benedict engaged many, many times, saw in him somebody who was committed to the truth uh, and committed to bringing an uh, an encounter with God to people. Joseph Capizzi is a professor of theology at the Catholic University of America. He spoke with Douglas Mpuga from Washington. For a third day, members of the U.S. House of Representatives today are trying to select a new Speaker of the House. The leader of the House Republican, uh, Kevin McCarthy, faces stiff opposition from a small faction of his party. The Republicans hold a very small majority in the House, and McCarthy needs support from almost everyone in the party to take the Speaker's gavel. VOA's Capitol Hill correspondent, Catherine Gibson, joins us now to update us on what's happening. Welcome back to African News Tonight, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me. So first, let's talk about what happened yesterday in the House. Right. So yesterday in the House, we saw an additional three rounds of voting for the next Speaker of the House. And Kevin McCarthy was once again thwarted in his bid to become the Speaker of the House by that small group of conservative Republicans who have consistently rejected to his bid to lead the House. They argue that he is not ideologically aligned with them and that, quite frankly, they don't trust him to institute some of their proposed changes to House rules, including changes about the debt ceiling and about the way that you can remove a Speaker of the House They want each individual member to be able to lodge complaints, which would really change the U.S. system and bring it more towards the parliamentary system where there could be a vote of no confidence 
at any one time. We ended the day pretty much where we started with about 20 people objecting to his candidacy and really no movement forward. So it seems like uh, the current strategy for uh, Kevin McCarthy appears to be to fight a war of attrition. Have any positions shifted? Could there be a compromise? I think we are seeing more of a movement towards a compromised candidate, although one has not yet emerged. There's a lot of fatigue already on Capitol Hill as we enter this third day of voting. Remember, each round of voting takes about an hour to an hour and a half, and that nothing can get done in the U.S. House of Representatives until a new speaker is sworn in. You have an entire Congress of members who are not yet sworn in, You can't legislate. You can't form any committees. You can't even pay the staffers up on Capitol Hill until you have a new speaker. So really, this is a stalemate. And each day that it goes by, the pressure and intensity to find a compromise really, really builds up. So how long could this process go on? Well, even if McCarthy reaches some sort of compromise for his candidacy with this group of conservatives, they would have to adopt a new rules package, and they would have to wait 72 hours for that to be able to be adopted. So we're really looking at something that's easily going to stretch into the weekend, if not early next week. VOA Capitol Hill correspondent Catherine Gibson, thank you for your input. You're so welcome. You're listening to African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Egypt's economy faces mounting pressure from the rising value of the U.S. dollar, which makes servicing its debt increasingly difficult. Rising world food prices are also adding to Egypt's economic woes because the country imports 65% of its food staples paid for mostly in U.S. dollars. A drop in the number of tourists, especially from Russia and Ukraine, is also adding to the country's financial distress. Edward Iranian reports for VOA from Cairo. As a rising U.S. dollar puts increasing pressure on Egypt's national currency, several Egyptian banks announced Wednesday that they were offering certificates of deposit with 25% interest rates. That news, rather than calming economic markets, appears to have added to pressure on the Egyptian pound, which some news outlets claim is trading at record lows against the dollar. The Egyptian pound has dropped from a level of around 15 pounds to the dollar earlier this year to what some financial outlets say is a new record low of 26 to the dollar Wednesday. The official rate is several points lower, and the black market rate can be up to seven points higher. Efforts by this correspondent to purchase U.S. dollars uncovered at least one black marketeer selling dollars for 33 Egyptian pounds. Egyptian law punishes black market selling of the dollar, and few traders want to go public with their rates. Egypt's need to service its high national debt in U.S. dollars is sucking dollars out of the commercial circuit and pushing the economy into a tailspin. A rising U.S. dollar forces wholesale food buyers to purchase imported foodstuffs like canned tuna, coffee, nuts, Kalamata olives, and other items at higher rates as they vie for a limited supply of U.S. dollars on the market, both legal and illegal. 
Consumers, in turn, are forced to pay increasingly higher prices at the cash register, making their lives even more miserable since they continue to be paid in Egyptian pounds. Anecdotally, some reports indicate that capital has fled Egypt due to rising interest rates in the U.S. One economist told Egyptian media that most of the pressures on the Egyptian economy are coming from outside factors, including the war between Russia and Ukraine, COVID-19, rising world food prices, and inflation in many developed countries. Egyptian political sociologist Saeed Sadiq tells VOA that Egypt and many other Arab countries buy wheat, a major staple of the economy, from both Russia and Ukraine, and that rising wheat prices, along with rising prices of other foodstuffs, sent inflation rates to around 20% last year, contributing to economic pressures in the country. Egypt also needs $42 billion a year to service a debt of $267 billion and a recent loan of $3 billion from the International Monetary Fund does little to reduce the sting. Rising U.S. interest rates within the past year also make servicing Egypt's debt even more onerous. Some speculation of a default by Egypt on its debt has increased pressure on the Egyptian pound. Said Sadiq says that a revolution in Egypt is very unlikely, despite the increasing economic pressures, since Egyptians tried that formula in 2011 when they overthrew veteran leader Hosni Mubarak, only to discover that it did not improve their economic situation. Paul Sullivan, a Washington-based Middle East analyst with the Atlantic Council, tells VOA that the lives of average Egyptians, who are mostly poor and getting poorer, are much more difficult. Importing goods, including animal feed, has become much more expensive, and getting the dollars to import has been far more difficult than in the recent past. The last year, he argues, has been more expensive and stressful than recent years for most Egyptians. Egyptians are resilient people, he adds, survivors even in the most difficult times, but I have to wonder how much more they can take. Edward Uranian for VOA News, Cairo. On VOA Africa Radio, we let the sound tell you the story. News, sports, science, and entertainment. Available to you 24-7. Tune in on your local FM stations. We are also available on the medium waves, 909 kHz and 1530 kilohertz. Our short waves are 6080, 15580, 4930, 15165, 15580, and 17530 kHz. VOA Africa, your trusted source for news and information. Algerian President Abdel Majid Tabouni says mediation with Morocco is not possible and that severing relations with Rabat was the alternative to war. 
He added that Morocco's administration creates problems that uh, its people have nothing to do with. William Lawrence, professor of international relations at the American University in Washington, discussed the Algerian president's statements on Morocco and stability in the Sahel region with VOA senior analyst Mohamed El-Shanawi. Well, Taboon is right in several respects. First of all, it's not that mediation isn't possible because it's impossible. Mediation has happened before in limited ways and on limited issues between Morocco and Algeria. But it's not possible because Algeria would refuse mediation for several reasons. One of those reasons is Algerian sovereignism, which means that Algeria strongly opposes any interference in its internal affairs, including any pressures for mediation. Another reason is that Taboon is saying there's not much to mediate in that Morocco perceives actions by Algeria as provocations and then uses anything Algeria does as a justification for its own reactions. Morocco perceives any assistance to the Saharan people at all as itself a provocation. And Taboon is saying, how do you mediate an end to this when there's always a new endless list of perceived provocations by Algeria that Morocco is reacting to? So he's saying that a mediation is futile. And finally, he's saying that Algeria has goodwill because it has 80,000 Moroccans living on its territory. And while that is true, and that shows a degree of goodwill, Morocco does the same thing for Algerian citizens. So that argument goes both ways. As far as Moroccan regime causing all of the problems and not the people, I don't really agree with that either. Most Moroccans do bear a degree of ill will to Algerians because of the conflict and how it's explained to Moroccans, especially during periods of high tension, like the one we're in right now. And in history, it was often Moroccan political parties, starting with the Istiqlal party, that was more forward-leaning on the Saharan issue than the monarchy. And it's often the monarchy that's sort of mediating or tamping down on the issue, and it's the political parties that are pushing further than the monarchy. Uh, the Moroccan people still have a lot to do with the issue, in part because they truly believe the territory is theirs and was stolen from them by colonial powers. The Algerian president said the instability in the African Sahel region is due to the deterioration of the situation in Libya, which helped the transfer of heavy weapons to the African Sahel region. Taboon indicated in this regard that matters would not have reached this deteriorating level if we had been assisted in implementing the Algiers Agreement of 2015 aimed at calming the situation in the region. Do you agree with his assessment? I agree with it par only partially. While it is true that the defeat of Tuareg loyalists to Gaddafi in 2011 resulted in them taking all their heavy weapons to Mali, which helped cause the uh, 2012 rebellion in northern Mali and the takeover of a large swath of the country, that was only one factor and not even the majority factor in Malian instability. Among those many factors are serious governance failures by Malian governments, which were recurring before, during, and after. After the 2012 rebellion and the failure of a series of Algerian mediation attempts over several decades, which sometimes succeeded. They often succeeded, but then other times they failed, like in 2012 and in 2015. So there are many, many factors in Sahel instability, and it's sort of a facile argument by Algeria and many other African nations who were opposed to the international intervention in Libya to then sort of blame it all on the West, anti-colonial, anti-neo-imperial, anti-Western tropes 
are easy to sort of throw out there. You hear them a lot in Africa and in Algeria. And they're sort of grounded in truth, colonial failures, but they tend to remove African agency and the measure of African culpability for corruption, for bad governance from the equation. There's also a piece of the uneasy French-Algerian relationship in Taboon's assessment because France had its own sort of solution for Mali, which was getting about 60 countries to put troops in Mali to help stabilize things after the agreement. And then it was sort of implemented in a way that Algeria didn't entirely agree with. And now the French have been forced out. So the Algerian position is sort of when things are going well in Mali, Algeria should be congratulated. And when things go badly in Mali, the West is to blame. And that's, again, sort of a simplistic way of arguing. That was William Lawrence, Professor of International Relations at the American University in Washington, speaking with VOA's Mohammed El Shinawi. Twenty twenty two began with no end in sight for one of the world's deadliest conflicts, finished on a note of cautious optimism in Ethiopia's northern region of Tigray after a November ceasefire agreement. The two-year-long war caused a dire humanitarian crisis, killing tens of thousands, leaving millions in severe need of food and threatening the stability of Africa's second most populous country. The truce has enabled international aid deliveries to resume to parts of Tigray. State-owned Ethiopian airlines resumed flights to Tigray's capital last week. Ethiopia is a military and diplomatic powerhouse in East Africa, strategically located between war-torn Somalia, Kenya, and Sudan. According to Reuters, Ethiopia is regarded as the most effective in the Horn of Africa. It plays a key role in an African Union peacekeeping force in Somalia and has also sent troops there independently. Prior to the conflict, investors had flocked to Ethiopia for a slice of one of the last largely untapped economies in Africa, which had began to open up to foreign companies. International partners are heavily invested in ending the war. The AU, Kenya and South Africa helped mediate the truce and are keen to deliver an African solution to the problem. The United States has said it will not hesitate to impose sanctions on parties that fail to abide by the truce. Africa's top public health body said today the Ebola outbreak in Uganda is coming under control with the last confirmed case reported 39 days ago. Officials confirmed the outbreak in September and said it was the Sudan strain of the disease for which there is no proven vaccine. Last month, Uganda discharged its last known Ebola patient from the hospital and President Yaware Museveni lifted all Ebola-related movement restrictions, reflecting progress in curbing the spread of the virus. The Africa's CDC's acting director, Ahmed Ogwell Uwuma, said at a briefing that if no new cases were reported by January the 10th, the outbreak would be over. He praised the Ugandan government's coordination of Ebola containment measures, saying it had taken around 70 days to bring the outbreak under control with 142 confirmed cases and 55 deaths. Vaccine trials against the Sudan strain of Ebola are ongoing, according to Uma. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. 
Ami Hayes, Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbili Abaro, and our engineer, Adrias Rigas, thanks for choosing The Voice of America. Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Wake up, dance this music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station.